everyone. It's Thursday, July 26. I'm Laura Lee, and here is what happened this week. This is Project Command. Stand by power Minus X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Nicaragua has begun a surge of its people, mostly young students, and hundreds are missing and dead. Nigeria is in the middle of a genocide the world is completely ignoring. And Toronto has a problem, but is it a gun problem or is it something else? And a woman moves from Canada to the United States, and that's actually huge news, and actually ties into Nigeria and Toronto. I will tell you why. But before we dive into all this, did you love the intro music? All right, I've been looking for something for a while. My husband keeps telling me that I need some intro music. Then last week I was speaking at a church day camp and one of the great, awesome teen volunteers offered to make me an intro. He's very good. I am super impressed. Uh, the countdown at the beginning is a recording of Apollo 11. So I love, 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 love the history behind that. And it's a reminder to me to never give up, keep working hard, reach for the goals everyone thinks is impossible. So if you want to follow him or check out more about what he does, you got to check out his Spotify account. It's Robbie Matthews. And I'm going to have a link in the description below. Uh, so he does DJing for parties and things like that. So go ahead and contact him. He's great. All right. So what are we going to be talking about today? Well, we're going to start off with news that you probably didn't hear but should have. I talked about Tommy Robinson in past episodes. So he's the British man who was put in jail for live streaming outside a court building where men were on trial for raping children. Uh, so these men were part of this Muslim rape group and Tommy was arrested, charged and found guilty all in about two hours. So the story is really, is longer, it's kind of more complicated than all that, but you could listen to it if you go back and listen to episode 21, which was Borders, Abortion and Tommy. So if you go back and listen to that one, you can kind of get the whole um, background and who Tommy Robinson is and how he ends up in prison. But this week, Tommy was released from prison and the court found his trial and his conviction was actually illegal. So Tommy is today on vacation with his wife and children. Praise God. That's awesome. All right. Other news the media is ignoring for the most part is what is happening in Nicaragua. So I have heard some media talking about this a little bit, but not very much. All right. So here we go. Nicaragua. So three months ago, Daniel Ortega, he's the Presidente of Nicaragua, he began this massive surge of people who are against his presidency. So people have been arrested um, for talking badly about his presidency and they've been tried and convicted of terrorism. Last week, Ortega ended up passing a law, or two weeks ago, Ortega passed a law that anyone who protested his government would receive 15 to 20 years in prison. And so there were these students and they started hiding out in a church and then the church was surrounded. It was actually held siege for 15 hours. And the church is now, right now, riddled with bullets. 
on this actually a statue of Jesus and it stands in the church and that statue is full of bullet holes from Daniel Ortega's men. Uh, last Monday, hundreds of people were rounded up and taken. Anyone who had either protested against Ortega or had even just helped a protester was taken. In a 48 hour time span, 750 people were taken from their homes. That includes entire families. They're gone and no one actually even knows where they are. So who is this Daniel Ortega and how did all of this happen? Well, Daniel Ortega, he's a communist presidente of Nicaragua and his wife is the vice presidente and her name is Rosaria. So we have to actually go all the way back to the 60s. And at that time, Nicaragua was ruled by um, this family called the Somoza family. And the Somoza family, they had ruled Nicaragua for about 30 years. So there was a socialist group um, called the, the Sandista, and their Sandista National Libertarian Front. So they began pushing for socialism. And they took their name from this guy named Cesar Sandino, who had led a fight against these American soldiers back in 1927. So this socialist group, it began to grow in power, and it started to plan and actually execute terrorist attacks all the way across Nicaragua and their popularity grew and it grew first with students um, and then with workers and then with unemployed people and actually if you look through every communist country that's really how socialism tends to get power uh, it starts with students and then with workers and then unemployed people and these are actually the groups that are hurt the most by socialism once it's implemented and that's really sad so the Somoza family, they began fighting back against the Sandistas um, because they were doing terrorist attacks. And two of the main socialist leaders were killed. And that left Daniel Ortega as the last um, leader. So he became the head of the Sandistas and under his leadership, the party grew even stronger. So July of 1979, Daniel actually led a rebel army and they went against the National Guard and they ended up overthrowing the government. So then they took control of Nicaragua and Daniel Ortega became the Presidente. So there's this other group called the Contras and they were opposed to socialism and opposed to this new government so they began fighting against them. So meanwhile over in America Reagan was the president and he had this really deep understanding that communism was not only bad for the country that it was in, it was bad for the entire world. So he believed that if Nicaragua was really going to embrace communism, it would continue to spread and communism would gain power. So Reagan actually began funding the Contras and also some other Central American countries so that they could fight against Daniel Ortega. But there was a problem. So Reagan was a Republican. The Democrats in Congress, they actually really loved Daniel Ortega. He was kind of like a hero for them. And you kind of notice this is the case with many socialist dictators. The left in the States and in Canada, they kind of seem to fall all over them. And actually one of Daniel Ortega's biggest fans during this time was Bernie Sanders. In fact, Bernie Sanders has been vocal about his support for Daniel Ortega until kind of recently uh, when it's, you know, he's become a dictator. So currently, Bernie's kind of silent on the issue, but kind of like he was this huge fan of Hugo Chavez and Nicholas in Venezuela, but um, he's been silent on that. Also, since all the people in Venezuela are now starving to death, 
and are running out of pets to eat. But anyway, the Democrats, they loved Daniel Ortega and they didn't want the Republican government sabotaging the socialist agenda. So Congress ended up passing a law banning any sales of weapons to Central America. So they, America could not sell any weapons to anybody in Central America. At the same time, there was this huge problem with Iran. So I've talked about Iran many, many times. Um, you can go back and listen to those podcasts, but a really quick sum up. Iran used to be this really decent place to live until the late 70s when they embraced Islam and Sharia law, and it kind of went downhill from there. Um, but the U.S. passed a law that no weapons could be sold to Iran either. So no Americans could sell weapons to Iran or to Central America. Then a group of Americans were captured in Jordan, and Reagan was like, well, since Jordan has also recently adapted Islam and Sharia law. Um, I've got this plan to, uh, to come up with getting the American hostages free. So this is what Reagan did. He offered to sell Iran some weapons if they wanted, if Iran would tell Jordan to let the Americans go free. So they sold weapons to Iran and the $48 million they got from the weapons was given to the Contras in Nicaragua who were fighting against Daniel Ortega. So they negotiated with terrorists, which is actually a no, you're not supposed to do that. Um, they sold weapons to Iran, which was actually against the law. They weren't supposed to do that. They gave Contras money and they weren't supposed to be helping anyone um, in Central America. They didn't technically give them weapons, but they gave them money that would go towards weapons. So this became known as the Iran-Contra affair. After all of this was exposed, the Americans um, and the Reagan government, they stayed out of the Nicaragua affair, and then the country ended up going into this huge civil war that lasted until 1990. So it was a very long civil war. And Daniel Ortega, he, um, he's recently been reelected. He was reelected in 2006, 2011, 2016. And if you Google Nicaragua, you're gonna find pages telling you that it's a great, amazing place to live. I mean, socialism is wonderful. Except, as Margaret Thatcher said, socialism is great until you run out of other people's money. And that is what has happened. Uh, Nicaragua has run out of money, and now everything is collapsing. In April of this year, there was forest fires that broke out um, across some biological reserves, and the government didn't do anything. And people were really, really angry. Like, why isn't the government doing anything about these forest fires? So two days later, the government said, actually, we're running out of money. We don't have money left. So we're going to cut pensions by 5%. Um, we have to cut your wages. And this is kind of interesting, like if you can understand how socialism works, the government actually pays you. So the government can just decide we're going to pay you less money now. So people took to the streets and they were demanding that Daniel Ortega leave office. Then on Mother's Day, there was this huge protest that took place. And all these protesters, they took to the streets and snipers actually started shooting into the crowd of protesters and a bunch of people were killed. And this is really the beginning of the siege that takes us to today. So the country is completely falling apart. They have no money. Um, students, workers, unemployed, they're the ones that are now being rounded up, killed or imprisoned. It's a socialist story and it's ending the way all the socialist stories do with a dictator and a country that is ruined. It's actually a very sad story and one we should be hearing more about.
but the media tends to pick and choose what stories we hear and then it kind of paints the narrative of these stories. And this is a really big problem that the media has right now and it's why it's really not being trusted anymore. Um, the idea of the media picking stories and then painting the narrative of these stories, that is really evident here in Canada and especially recently with the attack in Toronto. So um, I guess we should talk about what happened in Toronto. Um, I'm kind of hesitant to do this because in this podcast, I like to look at the history behind the news and the history behind this news story is a little or it's kind of a lot unknown, but I'm going to try and give you as much information as I can. So it was um, last Monday morning when I checked my news source and I heard about the attack in Toronto. Um, a man had opened fire on the Danforth. One person was dead, one person seriously injured, 14 others injured, and that was all that was known. Uh, I was working at the camp that week, so by the time I got to camp, the news had broken that two had died, uh, and we would learn it was a 10-year-old and 18-year-old, and they were both girls. The shooter was dead. It was unclear if he shot himself or if the police had shot him. The police and the media, they were refusing to give a name or a description of the man, although the media was releasing that it was a white man in his 20s. And eventually we would learn that the shooter shot himself, or at least that's what we're being told. Then finally his name was released. I'm not going to be saying his name um, because I don't like it when these murderers become famous, but the name was clearly an Arab name. So immediately, immediately, the media are reminding people that this has nothing to do with Islam, which is a religion of peace. So we cannot blame peaceful Muslims for this crime they had nothing to do with. At the exact same time, there was a cry to ban guns, which would place blame on the guns and punish all the peaceful gun owners who had nothing to do with the shooting. The mayor of Toronto, his name is John Tory, he says there's no reason for anyone in Toronto to have a gun. Our prime minister is calling for a ban of all handguns in Canada. And since we don't have a right to bear arms like they do in the States, and since the Liberal Party actually has full control of the government right now, there's a very good chance that in the near future, it'll be illegal to own any handguns in all of Canada. So don't blame the peaceful Muslims who had nothing to do with this crime. And I actually agree with that, by the way. That would be stupid. Don't blame people who had nothing to do with this. But do blame and punish every handgun owner in all of Canada. That's the government solution. But the story started to take some weird turns. The media started to pick and choose what news stories we would hear related to this crime. And the news they did cover was, painting, was painted with a narrative. And the narrative was that we should feel sorry for the shooter's family since they lost a son. This wasn't just a narrative they were painted by choosing what facts they told us and what facts they left out. This was a narrative painted by reporters actually saying, using the words, we should feel bad for the shooter's family, their victims also. The media read a statement that was supposed to be from the family saying the shooter had suffered mental illness all his life and they were shocked, shocked by the turn of events that he would turn into a shooter. But the statement was not from the family. It was from a man named Mohammed Hassim. So Mohammed is the man behind the group National Council of Canadian Muslims. He's known for his PR. He's received um, Muslim Awards of Excellence. This is an actual quote from his page. 
quote, his talking points and media advocacy are changing how Muslims are seen in the Canadian identity, unquote. Okay, so the National Council of Canadian Muslims, they have been said to have significant ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. They've denied this, but the evidence is actually pretty strong. So who was this shooter? Well, his family was from Pakistan and he was a Muslim. There's pictures of him now online showing he had heavy leanings towards Islamism. Some of the pictures are kind of terrifying. Uh, the police have said they were monitoring him, his online activity. At the same time, the shooter was a young man who had faced very hard things in his life. His sister had been killed in a car accident when he was a teenager. His brother is currently in the hospital in a coma. So the idea that he may have snapped isn't unbelievable. And this is a story the media has shown. A young man who's faced significant trauma in his life. What they don't talk about is his recent trips to Afghanistan and Pakistan, or the strange story of how his brother ended up in a coma. So why exactly was his brother in a coma? Apparently it was a drug overdose, but the story gets much more interesting. So his brother's name is Fahad Hussein and he's 31 years old. So we're going to go all the way back to July 25th, 2015. Fahad Hussein is in Saskatchewan and he's arrested and charged with both possession and trafficking of cocaine. In 2017, the case was still in the courts, but it was moved to Ontario and the case was being tried as a federal crime. So um, Fahad Hussein, he was allowed to live free during the trial and he lived with his parents in Thorndale Park. But then the police caught him with shotgun shells after his curfew. And since he was currently on bail, he wasn't supposed to be around guns. He wasn't supposed to be out at night. So he ended up going back to prison where he should have stayed. However, in February of 2017, he was released from prison with a $10,000 bail. So he's given the okay to move to Pickering to live with a man uh, named, and I'm not going to say this right, but I'm going to give it a try. Uh, the man's name was um, Mesum Unsari. Okay, so this guy was 33 years old. And as the police would discover, not a great guy. So during that year, Fahad overdosed on drugs and was sent to the hospital, and he's still there in, in a coma. However, some firefighters noticed something was wrong in the house. Things just seemed off, so they notified the police. The police showed up with a search warrant, and what they found was actually pretty horrifying. So here's the story, here's where the story takes. Uh, a scary turn into the scary world. So they found 33 illegal guns and 42 kilograms of carfentanil. So what is carfentanil? Well, it's a hundred times stronger than fentanyl and it's 5,000 times, times stronger than heroin. So back in the 1970s, it was invented to take down elephants. However, over the last few years, it's kind of been a fear that carfentanil was being used and was being prepared as a chemical weapon. So just how strong is this drug? Is this just a street drug that people are taking? No, it's not a street drug that people are taking. This is not a recreational drug. If you take as much as just a grain of sand, so if you took as much 
carfentanil as a grain of sand. You will die. What we're looking at here is something as dangerous as nerve gas. So what would 42 kilograms of carfentanil do? According to the RCMP, just one kilogram, one kilogram could produce 50 million fatal doses. That's one kilogram. So 42 kilograms, that's enough to kill every single person in Canada. In fact, the RCMP said it's very dangerous and the message for the public is this. If you come across it, don't even touch it. Don't do anything with it. Taking just 20 micrograms will kill you. That's less than a grain of salt is going to kill you. So the value of the drugs found in this home was $13.5 million. So something is kind of fishy about this older brother. And question is, was the sh where was the shooter during all of this? And is this where he got his illegal gun? Three days after the shooting, ISIS said they were responsible for the shooting. Now, I'm not saying ISIS is a trustworthy source. However, they don't claim every mass shooting. So when they do claim one, and they do say it's from them, that should be noted and at the very least looked into. Actually, I was curious as to how ISIS claims responsibilities for attacks like this. Apparently, they have a news agency. Uh, it's called the AMAQ Agency. It's kind of important to understand, ISIS isn't just a bunch of uneducated, poor men living in squallows in the Middle East in a cave somewhere. They're very well-educated men and women living all over the world, even here in Canada. So after ISIS came out with a statement saying they were responsible, the police made a statement. None, none of this backstory of his, of this brother being this crazy person was in this statement. But the police said there's no evidence, no evidence at all, that this is a terrorist attack or that it's linked in any way to ISIS. I kind of find that hard to believe. Uh, it's just a few days, for just a few days, a couple days after the attack, you tell me in that short amount of time, they went through all his online activity. They've gone through all his emails. They found all of his devices that fast. They found out it had nothing to do with ISIS. The fact that his older brother had a stockpile of illegal guns and millions of dollars in drugs that could wipe out every Canadian, all with zero ties to ISIS. The police have looked through all of that and they're sure that there's no evidence ISIS had anything to do with this. They knew that the shooter was, they knew he was Afghanistan, that he had been in Afghanistan. They know for sure while he was in Afghanistan, he had no contact with anyone that's part of ISIS. Okay, clearly this is not possible. Clearly the police do not know for sure that had nothing to do with ISIS. So why the lie? Just be honest with us. If you're still investigating and motives are not known, just say that. Don't tell us, we don't know the motive, but we're sure it had nothing to do with ISIS. Even though, you know, everything is pointing towards that. What we do know, his brother was messed up in some illegal guns and what looks like probably chemical weapons. He had an online presence that did express support for ISIS. He had lived in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. He was known to the police. He had past crimes involving weapons and violence. What we don't know, is there any evidence he was mentally ill? I mean, his parents said he struggled with mental illness his whole life. 
Is there doctor evidence for this? Was there any medication he was taking? Um, had he been seen any professional help? Because if he had not gotten any help, then either his parents need to be held accountable since they admitted he struggled with this his whole life, or they have to admit it's a lie. Why does this matter? Why is it important that the truth be told with this particular story? Why exactly does the public even need to know? Well, here's the problem with claiming mental illness. First of all, we seem to be using the crime as the defense. So clearly he was mentally ill. I mean, he took a gun and shot a bunch of people. Who would do that if they weren't mentally ill? But you can't use a crime as the defense. This is not where the defense comes from. It's supposed to make sure people with obvious mental disabilities were not punished inhumanely. I mean, we don't want people who have the mind of a child in prison with adults. Since there seems to be zero evidence this man had any mental disabilities, we need to stop calling it mental illness for two reasons. One, this paints a picture uh, of people with mental illness being extremely violent, and that is not the case. Two, in this case, the shooter is dead, but in other cases, the same excuse is being used, and because of it, people who are terrorists are going free. And this is what's happening right now. In March of 2016, there was this guy named um, Ayan Hussan, and he walked into the Joseph Shepherd building at 4900 Young Street. And he walked past a master corporal who was at the door. The corporal tried to stop him, so then Hussan stabbed him. And then he went on to stab three members of the armed forces. So Hussan was very clear. He said, hey, I did this because Allah told me that I needed to kill. He showed no remorse and he was labeled as mentally insane and given a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Well, this week we learn that Hassan is going to be free. So he was in a secure location getting treatment for his mental illness and now he'll be allowed to just wander freely among us. He's a terrorist who tried to kill our soldiers here on Canadian soil. He said clearly he did it because Allah told him to and he has no remorse. But since he was deemed mentally ill, he's now free. This leads to another story the media started covering and then stopped as soon as the facts stopped painting the narrative they wanted. So a woman has actually moved from Canada to the United States and it's actually huge news and here's why. Her name is Caitlin Coleman and she is an American. She left the States when she fell in love with a man named Joshua Boyle. Joshua Boyle was a convert to Islam. He was an activist here in Canada. He had been married to this woman named Zainab um, Qadar, who was an outspoken pro-jihadist. She's also the brother of Omar Qadar, who our government gave millions of dollars to, even though he killed an American soldier. So in 2012, Caitlin and Boyle, who were married and expecting their first child, decided, let's take a vacation to Afghanistan. I mean, still not sure why they picked Afghanistan as a spot for vacation. Uh, it seems like kind of an iffy place to go with your pregnant wife, but apparently they had really good hiking trails. So the family was taken hostage. During those years they spent in, ca in captivity, Caitlin had four children and one died during the captivity. Last October, the family was freed and taken to Canada. At first, the media was all over this story. This is a nice Muslim family who had been through so much and now they're free. But almost right away, things in the story started to not add up. Then in January, Josh Boyle was arrested 
He was charged with physical and sexual assault of a woman and physical assault of a child. Caitlin was then in court trying to get full custody of the children and be allowed to return to her family in the States. Last week, the court gave permission for Caitlin and her children to return to the States. They left that night. They got out of Canada as quickly as possible and they are now living with her family. And I'm sure that now that she's in the States, a lot more of the story is going to come out. We're going to find out a lot more about what happened to Caitlin in Afghanistan. Here's the question we have to ask. Is there a worldwide problem with Islamism right now? Now, before you start thinking that I'm saying Muslims are all terrorists and we should be afraid of them, I'm not. I'm not talking about Muslims. I'm talking about Islamism. It's a political ideology like capitalism, socialism, communism, Islamism. It's an ism. And it's an ism that kills people. In fact, Muslims are more likely to die in a country run by Islamism. That's why so many live here in Canada, because they're fleeing Islamism. Now, saying that we need to fight against Islamism isn't being bigoted against Muslims. It's literally saving their lives, since they are more likely to be killed by Islamism than any other religion. That being said, Jews and Christians are not really safe in Islamist countries either. Jews have been banned from all 50 Islamic countries. They can't even visit. They can't enter. Christians are being hunted down and killed in countries like Canada, Britain, Australia are taking refugees from Arab countries, but not Christians. They're not accepting Christians. Canada and Australia have accepted a few Arab Christians, but a very small amount. And those have been that have been accepted, they've come through a sponsor program and not through the government refugee plan. Britain has accepted zero Christian Arabs. So just a reminder, once again, what Islamism is, it's a violent move to force Islam on the world. So right now in Nigeria, there is a genocide going on and it's being completely ignored, completely. It's being ignored because it's Islamism that is doing the killing and Christians that are being killed. And that's not the narrative the media is trying to paint for us. So let's look at Nigeria. More than 6,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. That's mostly women and children. Uh, the Plateau State is one of the biggest areas being hit. There's a drive to make Nigeria an Islamic country, and that means they have to kill all the Christians. So there's a group, they call themselves the um, Fulani Herdsmen, and they've been raiding villages at night. They're pulling families out of their homes in the middle of the night and attacking them with knives. Uh, they're being maimed, they're being decapitated, and those who are not killed or maimed are being taken as slaves and sold into the slave market. Uh, currently, the continent of Africa is one of the largest uh, contributors to modern-day slavery. In a future episode, I really want to do the history of slavery in Africa. But right now, let's start by being aware that slavery was outlawed in Western society but has continued to thrive in other parts of the world. The president of Nigeria has not brought any of these herdsmen to justice. Near the city of Jos, over 200 farmers have been killed. The media mostly just ignores this genocide, and when they do briefly mention it, they call it a land conflict between community groups. This is just not true. This is a blatant falsehood. By conflict, that means both sides are fighting. But while more than 6,000 Christians have been killed, not even one single herdsman has been killed. 
In fact, the Christians have actually made a pact that they're not going to fight back. The Christian community has said it's their honor to die for the name of Jesus Christ, and they refuse to arm themselves and fight back. I personally don't understand this idea, and I don't think I agree with it. However, I'm not a Christian in Nigeria, so God's not speaking to me about what the people of Nigeria are supposed to do. He's telling them. So I'm just going to trust that they're listening to his voice. But here in the West, what are we doing? We need to speak for them. Why is this not in the news? Why is this not being covered? Why do we spend more time talking about taking down the statues of people who owned slaves 200 years ago and no time talking about the people who are slaves today? This week, Texas has talked about changing the name of Austin, Texas, because uh, even though this guy named Austin, he was against slavery, and he said, actually, he said it was morally wrong, uh, and he said it would be the downfall of America. He also said he was against Texas outlawing slavery because he thought if all the slaves were freed at the same time, it would lead them to become vagabonds and outlaws. So obviously, Austin was wrong on that, but it was also hundreds of years ago. So if you want to make a difference, maybe do something about the 660,000 slaves that are in Africa today. All right, what does this all these stories mean? I mean, we have a socialist dictator in Nicaragua. We have terrorist threats here in Canada. We have a slave trade and genocide in Africa. I think it's safe to say that as a human race, we're not doing so great. We've walked away from doing things God's way. We're trying to figure it out on our own and we're not doing a great job. At what point are we going to turn and tell God, all right, God, maybe we're willing to do things your way. This is the world, but what about your life? Are you trying to do things your way? And how is that working out for you? Are you ready yet to tell God that you're going to do things his way? There's a word we have for when we do things our way instead of God's way, and that word is sin. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standards. And the wages of sin, what we earn with our sin, is death. But the gift that God has for us is eternal life. And that life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you fall on your face before God, if you tell him you're sorry for doing it your way instead of his way, if you repent of your sin, turn from your wicked ways, he will restore you. And this is a promise also for those of us who are Christians. Although the verse was, God was talking about the Jewish people, I believe we can claim this promise as Christians because we are also called by his name. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And we need it. We need the healing. I was talking this week with friends from the States about where we are here in Canada. We have abortion for any reason, all the way until birth, paid for by our tax dollars, and the church is silent. We have anti-Semitism on the rise, and the church is silent. Our schools are teaching there's multiple genders and you can choose your gender. And the church is silent. Euthanasia is legal in Canada and is being embraced. We have an elderly couple who at a death party invited all their friends and families for the party before having a doctor inject them with poison. And the church is silent. While I heard plenty about this story from Americans in the American church, the Canadian church, nothing. This is the country we live in. And the church has nothing to say about it. 
Worse than being silent, these things are all in our churches now. Abortions are in our churches. Anti-Semitism is definitely on the rise in our churches. In fact, whole denominations are trying to put a Christian spin on it, making it morally acceptable to hate God's people, the Jews. Christian teachers are telling they have no problem with teaching that there are multiple genders. Our churches have somehow got the idea that it's our job as a church to be a welcoming place. And then that's the goal. That's the main goal. Just be welcoming. Long gone are the days of Spurgeon. When people came to church and actually felt convicted of their sins and fell on the altar in repentance. We don't even have altars anymore. We replace all of our altars with coffee shops. So here's where we need to start. On our knees. Listen to this verse again. This is what we need to do. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. To hear more of my podcast, my video series on abortion and euthanasia, or my missionary stories, check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com. Music for this episode is by Robert Clark.